Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Savings, debts, investments, loans. Can we really tell them apart? If you save, isn't that money that's being invested? Or is savings money that hasn't been invested and just sits in your bank account doing nothing? And what's the difference between mortgage debt and other sorts of loans? Do we really, in fact, have a clear net picture of how wealthy people are? We'll look at the confusion between all of those things today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along again. Well, one thing that's always confused me is how we talk about savings and borrowing. So during the pandemic, we're told that people save more, but we're also told that they borrowed more on housing, for example. And then there's savings and then there's investments. So we we sometimes save and we sometimes invest. And then there's borrowing for investment where we take money, we leverage so that we can invest the money. Is this actually really showing a clear picture of how well people are off? And what are the real statistics we should be looking at to ensure that the economy is performing the best it can and, and also ensuring that people are having an okay life? So, Steve... I mean, it is a bit of a confusing picture. Obviously, the, the the main form of debt for all of us is mortgages. So in March 2020, Britain owned, I'm going to use British statistics this morning. I mean, you might have other figures as well. But in March 2020, Brits owned $125 billion in financial debt, so credit cards, loans, and all that sort of stuff. But £1.2 trillion, 10 times the amount, in property debt. So if I am saving when I also have a big mortgage, I'm not really saving anything, am I? Because I've still really got this this big debt. Savings, uh, frankly, I would if I had my way, I'd ban the word savings in macroeconomics. Mm. I think it's been so totally distorted all the way through. And you've got to, if you want to go back to the source and say where do the distortions come from, it comes from, as usual, my favourite people, the neoclassical economists, who treat savings as what you don't you effectively say. Uh, anything you save. Uh, is actually going to be automatically invested. So if you, uh, what then their position on saving is that you have, it's best to think it's actually in terms of the old model of a, a corn economy. So any corn you don't eat, you put in the in the shed and you're going to plant it the next year. So your savings becomes your investment. It's it's a straight um, thinking in terms of a, a corn economy model where where everything is just a, just a single commodity. If you don't eat it, um, which is consumption, then you save it, which must be investment, because if you don't actually plant the damn stuff, you know, you, you might as well throw it away. So there's a, there's a direct link. Savings causes investment. And that's the position that the but, neoclassical school began from. Right. And yet we measure savings by how much money is actually sitting uh, as deposits in people's bank accounts. So uh, yep. that... That's not really an investment. That's just sitting there in the bank account, isn't it? And and that's what the, the, the world we live in. Let's you know, jump from the neoclassical fantasies towards towards the real world. Um, the amount of money that you have that we have collectively in our bank accounts is fundamentally not determined by individuals. It's determined by government spending, because or, or two things: government spending and, and and private sector borrowing. So if you want if you want to increase the aggregate amount of money 
in British bank accounts. Well, let's forget about exports for the moment, exports versus imports. But if you want to increase that amount of money, there are two ways to do it. Uh, the private sector borrows money, and therefore their debt goes up, and they're simultaneously also their um, bank accounts go up. In that case, there's no net saving when you, you know, the two perfectly cancel out, or when the government spends more than it gets back in taxation. And then if that's the case, then your bank account, collectively, British bank accounts will rise by the scale of the deficit. Now, those are the only ways we can actually right. in- increase the aggregate level of savings. Uh, and neither of them have anything to do with what people normally think in terms of savings. Uh, because if you and I save, what that means is we spend more slowly. Okay? Uh, we reduce our spending. Yeah. And if we so reduce we, our spend, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a leakage. It's a leakage from, from, any, from the multiplier ain't, ain't effect. No, ain't no leakage, mate. This is, again, one of the errors in, in terminology. You don't leak anywhere. Money, money isn't the sort of thing that falls down a drain and washes out to, washes <laughs> out to the, the North Sea. Okay? If you just spend more slowly, what it means is you are spending less than other people, and therefore you, at your personal level, you have increased the gap between your income and your expenditure. And you do that by slowing down how much you spend. But by spending less, your spending is somebody else's income. So what you've done is directly reduce the income by trying to save money. So you, you, there's absolutely no change in the total amount of money in the banking system. But I'm also, I'm also slowing down the speed of money on that. So because if you, yeah. you know, when I was talking about the leakage, I was talking about the, it being a leakage from the, from the multiplier. So if money is getting uh-huh. passed around, but I'm saving it, then my propensity to consume has gone has, has basically gone down. That's the, that's the, and so so the economy, so the velocity of money slows down. So the economy is is less well off as a result. Of and that's and that's the link I want people to get in their heads that there's this uh, we we, by, we we have by mistaking the you know corn economy world where if you don't eat the corn then you you've saving it so you can plant it next year. So there's a direct link between saving and investment in that fantasy world. Uh, we've then got the same thing and we apply it today and think, oh, if you save, if you if you uh, don't spend as much, you're going to increase savings. No, you're not. You're going to mean the money turns up in your account and less than other people's because it's turning over more slowly. So yeah. savings at the individual level in a monetary economy reduces uh, income directly because you're spending less and changes the distribution of savings. Your bank account will go up, others will go down, but they'll perfectly cancel out. Uh, because savings itself cannot create any more money. But that's the feeling. We, we, we still live in this world where if you save, you've got more corn to plant, so in more corn next year. So the governor of the Bank of England said, uh, you know, just as we were supposedly coming out, the first time we thought we were coming out of the COVID crisis, that this year or last year actually was going to be a bumper year uh, for Britain because we had so much money sitting in people's bank accounts and they were going to go out and spend it. And obviously they were, they were worried about spending. And actually, if you look at the, the household savings ratio, so how much uh, of our income we save, mm-hmm. it's been fluctuating quite a lot for decades, but it peaked sharply. So in Q2 2019, it was 4.7%. In Q2 2020, it was 23.7%. I mean, it's fallen away a bit since then. But is that because of what you're saying there? It's because there's been a whole lot of public money. The the government's running a bigger deficit, yeah. And this is the the, the mistakes we make in terms of projecting our individual behaviour to the collective level, um, mistaking monetary uh, accumulation for accumulation of, of, of physical commodities 
all these things just completely screw our minds around. And, and we think, oh, and now we say, oh, people must be saving more money. That's that 23% increase in the aggregate amount of money in, in bank accounts shows people have saved 23% more. No, if I, if I decide to spend less pounds, that doesn't mean that more pounds get created. Mm. And, and unless I go to, you know, save those pounds and go and buy a printing press somewhere and pump the stuff out in an artificial, you know, in counterfeit fashion. But if the, we, we individuals collectively, an individual can save by spending less. Uh, if so society the- tries to save by spending less, and this is Keynes's whole idea about the, the paradox of thrift, you reduce GDP. You have zero change in the amount of money in bank accounts. What you ensure is the money turns over more slowly. There's less spending, so GDP falls. So, so take us through, take us through yeah. the steps. Let me give you the absolute figures. Actually, so the Bank of England okay. reckoned yeah, yeah. that household savings went from 125 billion pounds in March 2020 up to 200 billion by June 2021. So yeah. the government spends a fortune over that period from March to June. How does that t- take us through the steps that sees that sitting in individual people's bank accounts? Oh, even if you, I don't know what the income supports were. You know, we had in Australia had Job Seeker and and yeah. and, 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 and Beekeeper and blah blah blah. Scans. So it's as simple as that. It was but, government handouts, basically. Yeah, the, government handouts turn up in your bank account. So yeah. the government had, didn't have a. There was no like obviously there were no COVID handouts before COVID. Okay, so when COVID comes along, you have specific programs by the government that will put people and you know, money in people's individual bank accounts because we know at the same time that the level of economic activity from the, from the, the uh, private sector is going to have to fall because restaurants can't open, bars can't open, theatres can't open and so on. You have a plunge in people's spending on those other activities. But what that plunge in spending means has no zero change on the amount of money in circulation. Okay? Yeah. So but when, when we talk about uh, increasing the amount of savings, we are talking about a change in the money supply. And the change in the money supply can come from leaving aside the external sector for the moment. The change can come from one of two sources. People borrow more money from banks, therefore their, their debt rises and their bank accounts rise by just as much, or government spends more than it takes back in taxation. And because there's been a huge increase in spending with no change in taxation worth speaking of, you therefore have an increase in the amount of money in people's bank accounts. Mm. And you'd think if you'd borrowed it, it'd been the first one where you'd actually gone to your bank and asked for a loan. That money's not going to be sitting in your bank for very long because you're borrowing it for a purpose. You're going to send it. You Although I guess, spend. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess if you spend it, that means it is going to turn up in someone else's bank account. I guess so. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah. so, so, so you are going to see the the money supply increased. But why, in this instance, then? And I think I know the answer. The answer is fear. But why did household savings increase? Why was this money sitting in bank accounts rather than? being invested why didn't we use it to well, no, pay off our it debts it still sits in somebody's bank account <laughs> the thing mm, if you yeah. if, if you if people actually you know if your private household's got a you know a 25 percent increase in the amount of money in their uh, bank accounts and they then decided to put that 25 percent into buying shares in a, a, a company of some sort then the money out of going out of the household accounts would turn up in the company's accounts and there'd be zero change in the aggregate amount of money in the system, it would still it was just turning up in other 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 entities' bank accounts apart from the housing sector. So right. it, it is it is crazy how easily we make that mistake. So even if I'm buying shares, even if I use that money to invest in shares, I'm going to be buying the shares off somebody. So they're going to be they're going to have the money sitting in their bank account yeah, rather than the, it sitting the in my bank. The only way you can 
The only way you can end up reducing the amount of money in the bank accounts is if you buy something off the banking sector. So, yeah. and this is where the or you pay down your or if you pay down your mortgage, surely you pay so, down your mortgage, which of course we didn't do, and that's that's the, that's the scary thing. Uh, this money was not used by individuals to reduce their debt levels. In fact, by the looks of it, there's been an increase in household debt because people have thought, oh, well, I've got this extra money to my bank account. I've got more cash for the deposit for that house I'd like to speculate on. Um, so I'm going to use that and get a larger loan from the banking sector. And what you get as a result of that is an increase in the money supply as well from uh, borrowing additional money to go and buy that mortgage property and you have an explosion in house prices. And that seems to be a global phenomenon during COVID. Well, in Australia, house prices have risen. In, in Sydney, I think they've risen by 30% this year, which is just a, a crazy situation. So people have found that... It's insane, yeah. And that that you think that is down to the fact that there's been ex, extra government money created, which has found its way into, into people's bank accounts, and, and that's been used... Uh, either directly or or uh, to leverage to, to to get a bigger home loan. Yeah, and and when people are saying, "What else can I do with my money?" and mm. you know, I, I'm I'm not going to be spending it on on uh, entertainment or overseas travel anymore. Um, maybe I can get that larger property I'm looking at, and then you get bank, banks which have you know, a bank will sell you debt because that's how they make a profit, and uh, and the the level of irresponsibility in lending was bad enough back in 2008, but here we are 14 years later, 15 years later, and we're getting caught up in the same bloody thing again. And you, you know, there's something which drastically needs reform, which is, you know, one thing I'm trying to do with my political stint in Australia, but we, we have to break this uh, dependency we all have on rising levels of debt. But is that, is that, is that, is that going to be short-lived in the case, in Australia or anywhere else in the world? Because, of course, house prices have gone up just about everywhere during the pandemic, and it would be for exactly the same reasons. But that, that household savings ratio from 4.7% up to 23.7% uh, in in the space of a couple of quarters, that you know that's a, a ratio of, of all the income coming in, so it can go down as quickly as it goes up. And it is going back, it's, and it's going to go, it's, it is going back down again quite, quite quickly now because all those measures from the government are stopping or have stopped. So all those people leveraging to buy houses, pushing our house prices, surely once that tap's been turned off, those house prices are going to start coming back down again, aren't they? Yeah, and we've also got the danger at the same time that uh, because of the what, what is basically supply blockage inflation coming in, mm. uh, people are finding that costs they, they took for granted are now rising quite rapidly. And that is also going to be a reason why uh, they, uh, you know, they face rising interest rates with central banks foolishly believing that by putting up the rate of interest, they can reduce the level of investment. Now, what they'll do is they'll send people bankrupt because they can no longer afford to service their mortgage. So um, I, I think we're in quite a, quite a dangerous period. Um, I, I can see the central banks going into reverse again when they realise what they're actually doing to the economy if households start falling over you know, from, from bankruptcy. Uh, but it, it, is a, it is a very weird time in the global economy. And I, particularly if governments fall for the old austerity line and think they've got to balance their books, well, they, as you say, there goes the high savings ratio. It'll, it'll plunge right back down to zero again. Yeah, well, that is exactly what's happening. So Rishi Sunak obviously putting taxes up, trying to claw back the money as, as quick as possible. But then you've also got central banks there saying, uh, and around the world saying, well, okay, not only are we not going to buy bonds anymore, we're going to, we're going to turn off quantitative easing, 
but we're also going to unwind the balance sheet. We're, in, in other words, the, the money that we've created and pushed out uh, into the economy, well, they, okay, they didn't create it, but the money they facilitated, uh, they're going to claw that right back. They're going to they're push those bonds out into the, uh, into the open market where they'll replace real money. So in effect, they are, they are destroying money. So double, a double whammy, uh, particularly a triple whammy, if we're going to include the fact that the, uh, the, the government is also going to introduce austerity measures as well, quadruple whammy if you, uh, if, if you want to uh, include inflation uh, a uh, whatever five times is uh, if you want to put taxes uh-huh. up at the same time. Quintuple. Okay. Quintuple yeah. if you push taxes up at the same time. None of it looks particularly healthy, does it? So, uh, Not at all. Yeah, I don't. I don't, how, I don't know how you balance it out. What is the because what we're saying is savings is bad because you're not spending. Debt is bad. How do you get the balance right? Well, what you really need is a government that you know, creates more money by running deficits. This, this is the comes back to the modern monetary theory position that when the government, uh, the government is the, inst- the only institution in the society which can afford to be in massive negative equity in terms of financial assets. So um, and this this is something that again I'm, I'm fine tuning with as I keep on developing the Minsky software on this point bringing in non-financial as well as financial assets. But a financial asset is a claim you have on somebody else. Uh, and a financial liability is a claim somebody else has on you. Now, because we're talking about uh, claims from one entity to another, the net sum of all financial assets is zero. Okay. And therefore, if the government tries to reduce its um, negative assets, uh, it, it will therefore push that negative onto other people. So the government running a, a surplus uh, is, 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 as modern monetary theory says, needs, it's all basically accounting, is a private sector deficit. And then in that situation, uh, when, you, when you find the, fi- the private sector being pushed into a deficit, it will stop spending and then the economy will come down as well. So uh, we're getting a very painful lesson in accounting right so we, what we're saying and is that so, so in, in, a, in a way when we were going through the first stage of all of this where the government was was expanding uh that was still creating problems though whereas we're saying it's going to be worse when they start to unwind all of it but if you had yeah if but if you if you follow the mmt approach and you said well okay the government is going to keep on spending uh in effect running it you know a, what we term a deficit uh in today's way of thinking uh, if uh-huh. they if they carried on doing that then they're pumping more money into the into the economy that means more money is going into people's bank accounts what's to stop that creating you know more of this uh, of this asset inflation that we've been seeing well i think it actually potentially creates less asset inflation because one of the reasons we get caught up in buying non-financial assets and those things which which, which are not a claim on somebody else that's so your house is your is a, if you own a house whether you've got a mortgage or not the house itself, the valuation of the house is a non-financial asset because that's something which is an asset to you, but a liability to nobody else. So what we get caught up in, and, and, and you can see this dramatically in stock market bubbles as well as housing bubbles, uh, you, you borrow money to go and speculate on non-financial assets by everybody borrowing money and going into that market to buy these non-financial assets. You push up the price of non-financial assets and it therefore appears to everybody that they now have positive uh, everybody ends up with positive equity because the increase in the price of the non-financial assets can be multiples of the amount of money being spent to buy them uh, particularly the amount of money which is actual money as opposed to borrowed money so the leverage becomes an incredibly important part of this and that is what seduces us 
into buying these non-financial assets, driving at their prices like in stock market bubbles in 1929 and 2000 and, and 2007 and again now, um, and then housing bubbles as well. But it's, like, it's only only a problem when it comes crashing down, isn't it? Because anything you, you think about, because because at some point, I mean, perhaps the reason you're in it is because you're thinking of your pension. I mean, there's there's only two reasons that you you know you you want money. You want money for now to live off and have a comfortable life, and then you want money that you do something with for your future. So I mean, obviously, a lot of people think, well, okay, I'm going to buy shares and invest. And I'm going to, you know, perhaps have a house that's bigger than I need and will downsize and that'll give me some money. So if it's if house prices have gone up and I downsize, then that's a bigger chunk of money I get to uh, to live off at the end. And if you look at total private pension wealth in Great Britain, it's gone from six point one trillion. Uh, uh, sorry, it was six point one trillion in 2018. Uh, uh, which was 42, this private pension wealth, which accounted for 42% of total wealth. And that is up from 3.6 trillion uh, in uh, basically uh, 10 years earlier in June 2008. So, and that's after adjusting for inflation. So it's basically doubled according to these figures from the ONS. So people will be going, well, okay. I mean, and a lot of that probably has been driven by. Uh, well, must have been driven by asset inflation unless we all have become so much more wealthy we've been able to put twice as much money in. I don't think that's the case. So that's helped us all, hasn't it? We've all got better pensions as a result of all of this. Only if those valuations are maintained. And, of course, Mm. a non-financial asset, by definition, is not something you can go and buy, you know, a Mars bar with. Um, These are things which you have to sell them before you can actually realise them. And, therefore, the high valuation is dependent upon people not selling. You don't get a, a mass panic out of it. But when you try to realise that, um, and you, if you get that at a at a, a juncture like we had back in 1929, where people were massively geared up at the same time, and then you get a panic selling uh, because you're trying to realise that the market falls more than people expect, and then it becomes a cascade, uh, then you wipe out that that overvaluation of the non-financial asset. So uh, I think once you, I mean, I still have to work through all the the logic of this, having just built the capacity for Minsky to handle non-financial assets. But I think when it comes to realizing those things, you unwind the situation you had beforehand. And yet what you end up with is you've got a high level of debt, um, but the same level of cash flow, and therefore you have an economic collapse coming out of it. So it's it's a dangerous uh, feature of a capitalist economy that you can go and use borrowed money to speculate on non-financial assets. Because what we don't want is a situation where the level of debt is that much greater than the value of all the assets. I mean, uh, that's sort of like, uh, mm. almost like when you buy a house and then house prices uh, fall and uh, and all of a sudden you find that you're, you're, you're servicing a mortgage for a property which is worth less than you paid for it. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's far more volatile with shares, of course. I mean, one, little, one of my favourite quotes out of uh, On the Brink which was Hank Paulson's recollections of the financial crisis back in 2008. I forgot which particular vampire squid he used to work for. I think it was actually the big one, Goldman Sachs. And he got a panicked phone call from his successor at the bank at one point saying, look, if you don't do something soon, we're going to go bankrupt. And Frank said, well, how long have you got? He said, about three hours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a brilliant now, documentary what, on BBC, actually, about all of this. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when you have a plunge in, in share prices, people can say, oh, my assets are worth so much more than my liabilities. But the, the liabilities are real. The assets are fictional because the liability is what you actually owe somebody else. And that's 
that is you know, you know written in a, a, a solid contract. You've committed that level of debt, but the value of the asset reflects market, the, the market you know, buy and sell process and people's expectations where that's going in the future and that can come down like a brick you know the classic was of course 1987 when how when share prices fall 20 percent in one day uh in new york um so if you you're doing a nice sum before and saying well, I'm, I'm worth a fortune my assets are much more than my liabilities one day later that's no longer true so it's 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 that the brutality of the falls that can occur in asset markets but what i think the, the danger we have now is that governments have become wedded, wedded to rising asset prices. Uh, that's a vote winner. You'll have your house prices are rising for those who own houses, rising share prices that turns up in your pension fund that looks good as well. And they're using the effectively infinite capacity of the state to create money to keep these bubbles going. So in the UK, when the, the governor of the Bank of England said, ah, oh, look, uh, second half of 2021 is going to look so great because... The amount of money in the banks has gone from 125 billion to 200 billion. People have got all this money stashed away; they're ready to spend it. The reason they didn't, apart from fear, was the fact that they actually they were borrowing more as well, mm. which he didn't. Yeah, which he didn't mention. Which is again creates all this confusion between savings and debt. I mean, that, and that was sort of my my thinking. Do we need? To, I mean, rather than itemizing all of these individually. And people supposedly in the know looking at one line and not looking at the next one. I mean, should we just net them out to try and have, you know, what is the net position for the average household? Isn't that going to be a more meaningful well, that's, measure? That's, that's when MMT comes in and says that the like the, the, the only way to get net financial assets um, is if you um, uh, go, the government creates if you increase your cash uh, by borrowing from the government with the bank, then your your your, your bank account rises. Uh, but your debt rises by precisely as much. Um, so that's why you, know, you, you, you can't get net financial assets out of borrowing money from a bank, whereas you do get, as a, as a non-government entity, you do get net financial assets that the government spends more than it takes back in taxation. But the missing element of all that is the valuation of non-financial assets. Mm. And that's what I think, uh, and, and that, that's the key that I haven't unlocked yet. I think I, I've, I've made it possible to unlock that by what we've done with Minsky, but it's always there, you know, it's somebody's PhD thesis to go through and work out, not just as I've, as I've already done, how uh, rising levels of debt cause rising asset prices. That's bleedingly obvious in the data, but also what happens when you try to realize that, what actually happens to the value of those financial assets, non-financial assets, do they plunge? Uh, uh, you know, are they ultimately in the long term netting out to zero? Um, and all this stuff is actually what it was brilliantly called by John Blatt, not investment, not saving, but he called placement. You're basically placing a bet on an asset and you can change your bets just like you can change them on a roulette wheel. Uh, when investment means building stuff that simply, you know, it, it lasts for a hell of a long time and you hope it generates an income stream out of it, that's investment. And you can't decide to pull your money out of wheat in the morning and put it into um, my, uh, manufacturing in the afternoon. Once you've committed to one investment, that's where the income stream comes from. And that is what we should really be trying to direct our money at rather than all this gambling and asset prices. But if you had a, uh, let's take it back to that field of wheat and you had, uh, you know, you had a farmer 
and he says this is how much the week costs and there's one person there with a, a set amount of money and he's got just enough to cover that wheat he pays that mm. money then uh, someone else comes along and says well actually i'm the government i've just created twice as much money uh so there's two people here now and they're going to bid for you isn't that going to push up the price of the wheat yeah i mean it, it, that again comes down to the whole sort of issues about how prices are set and determined and 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 the, and the type of dynamics and prices. So that's actually a, a decent topic for another podcast, mate. Mm. But uh, we, we are thinking about the prices again as distorted by neoclassical theory that sees uh, increasing output, meaning diminishing marginal productivity, meaning rising marginal cost, meaning a higher supply price. And that's bullshit. Okay, empirically, that is nonsense. We've known that for almost a century now. Uh, for empirical research, that's wrong. Uh, when you have an increase in volume. You get a decrease in costs because you're amortizing fixed cost over a large amount of uh, output. You have constant or falling marginal costs because your factory is designed to be most efficient at, at high capacity rather than low capacity. So the opposite happens, and we're seeing this now with the um, with with the impact of the supply shock from COVID. Uh, if you're forced to have a lower level of uh, volume of production, that's what causes your costs to rise. And actually, lower values that will actually cause firms to put up prices. So, you know, it's it, <laughs> the, the difference between the world in which we live and the fantasy we have about that world is ridiculous <laughs> and it's getting worse. So, as we push the planet to its to its brink and we've had you know it's with the last couple of years have been an interesting petri dish on the on the planet and the economy haven't they so uh, just just oh, yeah. for just finishing them where we are with so household savings uh, as a number sounds like a dangerous number to look at i mean uh, because you you draw conclusions from it where you're looking at one line that's not t- uh, telling the total picture the total picture should be that in relation to how much debt is being carried and then the impact of, of what happens with assets, what happens to that debt if the assets that uh, have been bought with that debt were to were to devalue and the impact that that has on the economy, which sounds like a very dangerous position where we're in right now. Yeah, and I think, again, like if you look back and see when was the last time we are in a position like this, it was the Second World War. And what was learnt uh, in Barnsley Rummel's, or Beardsley Rummel's paper, uh, uh, taxes for revenue are obsolete. Um, was an insight that we we are now re we, we physically we're relearning it through COVID, but we're forgetting it by falling back into this neoclassical mindset of savings as you know putting aside corn for next year's harvest. Yeah, all right. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. I'm still not entirely sure how creating more government money is not going to stop asset inflation. But we'll, that's a discussion as well for another podcast. I love it when we do one subject, then we get two more fall out the back end. So uh, seems to be thinking about what to do next. Uh, we'll do those in a few weeks. Good to talk, Steve. Thanks again. I can yeah. And next time we're going to uh, revisit Steve's idea of the Great Reset, uh, what he used to call the Debt Jubilee, paying money so we pay down people's loans. And if you haven't got a loan, then you get a bit of money in your bank account. What good is that going to do for the economy? How is it going to work? Uh, and is it realistic to assume that, you know, this is actually actually something that might be adopted. We'll look at all of that next week on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.